Good afternoon. My name is uh, Matthias Koenigai-Kibuji, and I very warmly welcome here. Um, so this is a joint event of the LSE Summer School and the program uh, The UK in a Changing Europe, or perhaps it should be renamed uh, A Changing UK in Europe, perhaps, <laughs> uh, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. So as, uh, uh, as you know, last Thursday, British voters uh, uh, voted for uh, uh, leaving the European Union by a margin of 52 to 48 after 43 years of uh, memberships. Uh, it is a great pleasure to see so many of you uh, here. It's an indication that uh, uh, expertise is still in high demand uh, here, contrary to, uh, uh, to what happened to uh, sections of the activists in the, uh, in the UK. Uh, and I'm very, uh, very pleased to say that we have uh, a lot of expertise in this room today. We have Professor Simon Higgs, uh, who, if there is someone in the world who can explain to us what is, what is going on, it is, uh, it is him. So Simon Hicks is the Harold Laskish Chair of Political Science uh, uh, here at LSE, uh, and he's also a fellow of the British Academy, and he's also part of the UK in a Changing Europe uh, uh, program. Uh, he's on the, one of the world's leading authorities uh, uh, on the EU. He has published over 100 books and articles on various aspects of the EU and, uh, uh, and other topics. Uh, he has published two very notable books. One is Democratic Politics in the European Union in uh, 2007, and one more recent one called uh, What's Wrong with the European Union and How to Fix It in uh, uh, 2008. Uh, I wonder if he's now considering maybe a sequel to that, uh, what's wrong with Britain and how to fix it. That's, that's a possibility. For this body of work, he has uh, uh, received uh, a large number of awards and prizes that would be simply too long to, uh, to list here. But I should also say something very important, which is that Professor Hicks is not an ivory tower scholar. Uh, he has given evidence and provided advice to various, various parts of the British government, to the House of Commons, the House of Lords, the UK Cabinet Office, the Foreign Office, and so on. And he has also uh, been uh, providing advice and providing evidence to the European Parliament, and I'm happy to see that some say that some of his uh, uh, advice has been, uh, in particular those on making the EU more democratic, has been uh, taken up with, uh, with extremely uh, interesting, interesting outcomes. So uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Hicks, but before we do that, let me add that there will be a drinks reception in the senior dining room on the fifth floor in this building just after the lecture, and I hope that many of you will, will join us. Also, please uh, uh, note that the lecture is being recorded, so keep that in mind when, uh, uh, when, it, is, uh, when it is your turn to ask a question. So please join me in welcoming Professor Sandy. Thank you, Matthias. Thank you uh, all for coming. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here and uh, address you. This is the, my first attempt to get my head around what happened last Thursday. I finished the lecture slides today at about uh, 3 o'clock. Um, so the, this is their first run out. Um, hopefully I'll be using them again in various different forms. Um, what I thought I'd talk to you today uh, is try and answer three questions. Uh, why did the UK vote to leave? And corollaries of that, why didn't Project Fear work? Project Fear was the, the main project of the British government to try and prevent, to try and persuade voters not to leave. And I'm going to try and persuade you there were three factors um, that really drove the leave vote. 
inequality, identity, and immigration. I'll then talk about, uh, I'll try and answer what might be or what are the consequences for British politics and the economy of this vote. And I'll talk a bit about short-term consequences and also likely long-term consequences. And then I'll finish off addressing the issue of what's the best option going forward, how might the UK and the EU get there from where we are now. And I wrote a, a blog piece on the LSE Brexit vote blog on exactly this topic that was published today, if you're interested to learn a bit more about what I think about that issue. Firstly, um, the day after the election, there was a lot of discussions about a whole range of things, including why the polls got it wrong. Um, one of the there was a famous there was a kind of tweet that was one of my favourite tweets I saw, where somebody said, uh, "British people ask pollsters why did they get it wrong," and somebody replied, "Pollsters ask British people why weren't you reading the polls?" In the actually 50% of polls over the last two weeks of the campaign were showing a majority leave vote. Nobody was paying any attention. Everyone assumed that actually it was going to be a remain. The forecasters assumed it was going to be a remain. The betting markets, the financial markets, the currency markets, everybody assumed it was going to be a remain. We, studying the polls, actually thought that it was at least a 30% probability that there was going to be a leave vote. And you can see here, this is the pattern of the polls since 2010. I've gone back a long way because I think the roots of the leave vote actually go back a long way and go back, obviously, much, much further back. But you can see from around about 2012, there was a big support for Remain as opposed to Leave. The gap closed, and then with about two months to go, Leave took a decisive um, lead over Remain. It narrowed a little bit towards the end, and then in the last few last week or so of the campaign, Leave took majority, and half of the polls in the last week were predicting a Remain, half of the polls were predicting a Leave. So how did they, we actually vote? Well, the result was 51.9 leave, 48.1 remain. I've got the actual vote numbers there because this has become part of a, an argument about could there be a second referendum. The difference is about 1.3 million votes. That's a lot of people. That actually substantively is a very big difference. And the idea that you could persuade, or, you know, there's a lot of talk about leave regret. People who voted leave and went, oh, no, I didn't realise actually we might leave. I voted leave to send a message. <laughs> but actually the polls are showing that that's really only about 4% of the people who voted leave. And equally around 2% of the people who voted remain are saying, I voted remain, but I wish I voted leave because it would have been nice to be on the winning side. So the interesting thing is the 72% turnout. That's a very high turnout. And it was a very high turnout. A British, last British election was 65% turnout. Most people are predicting a mid-60s turnout. That's a very high turnout and a much higher turnout than was expected in a lot of these northern, poorer areas of the country. Where normal, part of the reason the pollsters would get, would, some of the pollsters got it wrong is they were just modelling turnout wrong in these areas of the country. Big variations by different parts of the country. You can see here Scotland, 62% voted remain. London, 60% remain. Northern Ireland, 56% remain. Everywhere else, majority leave particularly in the Midlands and the north of England, northeast Yorkshire, Humber, the east coast of England, and even in Wales, which was a bit of a surprise. And a lot of this was Labour voters coming out and voting leave in some of these parts of the country. Very geographically divided country. This map shows the intensity of the votes for Remain and Leave. So the darker the red, the bigger the Remain victory. The darker the blue, the bigger the Leave victory. And you can immediately see the patterns. All of Scotland, every single area in Scotland voted majority remain. 
not all of Northern Ireland, um, all the Catholic majority areas voted remain, most of the Protestant areas voted leave. In Wales, a big split between the Welsh coast, Aberystwyth is here with a big university town, south coast here, Cardiff and Swansea, and the poorer areas voted leave. Um, in the south here, these are the areas that are essentially the cosmopolitan parts of Britain. London, the Thames Valley, Oxford, Cambridge, Norwich, Brighton, where I'm from, Sussex, down here, Bristol and Bath. And then in the northern cities, it's the large, larger, more cosmopolitan northern cities that voted to remain. Manchester, Liverpool, um, Newcastle, and um, some Leicester, for example. Um, but a lot of the smaller towns, particularly in the north of England, and almost all of the rural areas voted to leave. And the, essentially this epitomises the growing split in Britain. It's a cultural divide, it's an economic divide, it's a political divide. And we can see this by some data the Financial Times put together and dumped on their website. So this just, each dot here is one of the areas where they counted the votes, the size of the dots are how big the areas are. This shows the percentage of uh, residents in higher education and, and how strongly they voted leave. So lower high, l less educated areas of the country voted leave, more highly educated areas of the country voted more remain. Um, these are residents with no qualifications whatsoever, people who left school at 15, more likely to vote leave. Income, not quite as strong. Everyone thought initially this was going to be an economic divide, but it wasn't largely an economic divide. It's, off, it's much bigger as an educational divide. Age, we know that older people voted leave, younger people voted remain. It doesn't show up so clearly in the aggregate data. Um, social class, lower social classes voted for leave, higher social classes voted remain. And of course, residents not born in the UK, if the more cosmopolitan the area, the more mixed race the area, the more likely you were to vote remain. So if, you know, the contrast is between Lambeth, for example, southeast London, not particularly wealthy, but a lot of graduates, very high. Uh, educational um, level of attainment, a very young population, a very mixed race population, mixed ethnically, the highest vote for Remain in the country, and then places like Dorset in the south of England, also quite wealthy, but a much older population with low levels of education, quite conservative, anti-immigrant voted um, leave. This, is the, this shows UKIP votes in it by uh, area of the country, by John Mellon and Steve Fisher, two political scientists at Oxford. And this is taking the UK Independence Party, the populist right party in Britain. Um, if you just took their vote share in a constituency at the last general election and you added 25%, you could, get, you could predict the leave vote share really very strongly. So they picked up a lot of votes and they picked it up pretty much constantly across the country. You can see this nice slope here. So if you, you took their vote share in an area, say they were getting 40% of the vote in an area, they were voting 65% or 70% for leave. So this was UKIP. It was UKIP actually on t gained voters from Labour and from the Conservatives in particular. This I saw, found this morning, someone had dumped online. This is data from the Office of National Statistics and the Electoral Commission, and this shows percentage of residents in an area who don't have a passport and whether you voted remain or leave. Clearly, then, this is an indication of how international or how cosmopolitan an area is. So the higher the percentage of the population that don't have a passport, the higher the vote share of people voting to leave the EU. 
And we can take it down to the individual level. There was a poll done the day after the election by Lord Ashcroft. Um, he's been funding a lot of polls in Britain over the last few years. It's the first polling data we had that was individual level polling data after the election. And this you can see, there's the 52-48 vote split. <coughs> no difference between men and women, which was a bit of a surprise. A lot of the polling data up to then had shown women more pro-European than men. Big age differentials. So 18 to 24, 73% voted remain. And it goes down over the age groups to over 65s, 66% or 60% voting to leave. And if you can take it up, there's other data now suggesting over 70s or even higher percentage. These are social grades from UK um, social surveys. AB is the highest social grade. That's high-skilled professionals. These are the middle-class grades. D and E are the lowest social grades, um, lowest income brackets. And you can see here that only amongst the highest social grades was there a majority for Remain. Among the other social grades, there were majorities for Leave and some very big majorities amongst the lower-skilled groups in society. Matt Goodwin, who has written several books on um, uh, UKIP and the rise of the populist right, um, makes the, made the following point two days after the election. He took the 20 most pro-Remain authorities and the 20 pro, most pro-Leave authorities and, and looked at some key factors and said, what, is the, what do they look like? So 45% of people living in these, uh, in these areas have uh, university degrees as opposed to 16% in the leave areas, 42% here are professionals as opposed to 23% in the leave areas. 26% of the population here on average is non-white population, only 5% on average in the 20 most leave areas. Only 11% are aged over 65 as opposed to 20%, double the amount of older uh, population. And look at that median income differential, median income of 27,000 in the remain areas. 18,000 in the leave areas. This, in a sense, was really a revolt against cosmopolitan, wealthy London, against the elites, against uh, people. They saw this as their chance to go out and give people like me and Matthias a big kicking in this election. And me especially. Yeah. <laughs> I'm married to a foreigner. They don't like me either. Um, but... You know, Ben here, was, uh, who runs the ESRC UK and Change Europe program, was with us up and down the country, going to different parts of the country as part of this program to try and uh, have public debate, public engagement, to provide information from academic experts about what the issues were, economic, political, and so on. And it was, you know, really surprising. A lot of us at universities in the southeast of England were going to parts of the country we'd never been before and, coming and confronting voters who were really angry. And I'll never forget being in Spalding in South Lincolnshire. Spalding is, a, is uh, on the east part of the country, a very rural area, a very old town with quite high uh, poverty rates and very, very high immigrant, migrant labour from Central and Eastern Europe that is agricultural labour. And I never forget leaving the, having, leaving the platform and a guy coming up to me and saying, I'm a farm labourer and I, my pay has been cut over the last two years and I bet you've had a pay rise. And his pay has been cut as an agricultural labourer because of very cheap immigrant labour, which I'll come to it later. Jamie Reid, Labour MP from one of the Labour MPs from Cumbria in the northwest of England, at twenty past midnight on the day of the referendum. So this was we didn't even know what the result was. 
But he knew what was going to happen because he was knocking door to door in his constituency and he tweeted this at 20 past midnight. It's an indictment of the UK that many of the poorest will vote to make their lives worse because they don't believe life can get better. Or essentially, another way of thinking of it, the poorest knew that there might be some economic costs from this, but their life is so bad anyway, they'd rather punish people like me who would probably suffer even bigger economic costs. English identity also played a very powerful role. This is again from Lord Ashcross Polls. He asked, which, if any, of the following best describes how you see yourself? English, not British. More English than British. Equally English and British. More British than English. British, not English. Look at that. If you think of yourself as English. So, 79% were Leave voters if you thought yourself as your main identity was English. If you're more English than British, again, big majorities. People who thought of themselves as British, generally people who think of themselves as British over English are obviously the Scots, the Northern Irish and the Welsh, but equally the more cosmopolitan international don't think of themselves as English. We can console ourselves by the fact that, you know, the people who are most upset with England losing to Iceland in the European Championships are that lot. It's interesting because I think of myself as English and not British. So when I saw this, it was, it was quite interesting to me. The parties are all split. UK Independence Party, 96% voted leave, 4% voted remain. I mean, go figure. <laughs> uh, Conservatives, 58. These are people who voted, they vote, which party they voted for in the general election last year and how they voted. So conser- people who voted Conservative... This time, 58% voted Leave. Labour, 37% voted Leave. Lib Dems, 30%. Greens, 25%. Even Scottish National Party, 36% voted Leave. It's a bit... This is a bit misleading in that some of these voters, really large proportion of these voters, this could be strategic. This could be vote Leave so that we can then have a second referendum in Scotland for Scottish independence. So it's not clear how much of that is actually anti-European voting of Scottish National Party supporters. But what's clear here is the big split particularly in the Labour Party. This was a big surprise. At the beginning of the referendum campaign, the polls were showing that 80% of Labour voters were going to vote Remain, 20% were going to vote Leave. And they lost their voters during the campaign. This partly explains why so many of the pro-Remain Labour MPs are so angry with Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, and why there has been this attempted coup against him over the last 48 hours. Matt Goodwin for a long time has been saying that the battle is going to be won about economics versus immigration. And in a sense, that's exactly what the campaigns were focusing on. With the Remain campaign focusing on the economic risk of leaving and a lot of the Leave campaign rhetoric focusing on immigration. And these were, from the polls done a week before um, the the vote, these were intended Remain voters and people who said they were going to vote Remain, people who said they were going to vote Leave, and... Which of, these two, which of these issues do you think is the most important in deciding how you're going to vote? Remain voters obviously said economics. Leave voters obviously said immigration. And it's very easy for us kind of London international cosmopolitans with multiple passports um, to, to kind of look down our nose at the people who are angry about volume of immigration. But what you've got to understand is if you have very open liberal immigration policies and at the same time have very liberal labour market policies and, at the same time, cut public spending and, at the same time, have an economic downturn. 
It's not surprising there are going to be some quite negative distributional effects of mass immigration. And to give you a sense about the volume of immigration we've had into Britain over the last decade, or especially in the last 30 years, but in the last decade, we've had, over the last few years, net immigration into Britain, net, of about 300,000 people a year. That's a city the size of Newcastle moving to Britain every year. A city the size of Newcastle moving to Britain every year. So, when you net. So, what does that do? Well, a lot of this is low-skilled migration from Poland, Lithuania. My Polish nanny, for example. Um, And you can see that this then leads to wage pressures on particular sectors. Low-skilled service sector jobs, low-skilled agricultural labour in particular. It also leads to pressure on local public services, pressure on schools, primary schools, if there's not enough primary school places being provided, pressure on local doctor's surgeries where you can't get to see a doctor, pressures on local council housing. We heard stories during the campaign of areas of the country where the local council, because they had so many cuts, had had to sell off council houses, had sold council houses to private Uh, council owners, these private owners had then filled these council houses with 10 Lithuanian or Polish workers who could then live very cheaply because they were living 10 to a house and then they could offer lower wages for agricultural work or whatever. Um, And also social integration pressures of course with different languages, different cultures coming to the country. This had all been ignored, this stuff had kind of been ignored because in aggregate we knew that mass immigration is great for the economy. It leads to lower, you know, cheaper costs for business. Uh, great for if you're higher income, you get cheaper services. Um, but if you're lower skilled, it doesn't, it's much more competition for your job. And we kind of have been ignoring this. All pl- major political parties in Britain have been ignoring this. This is not being about anti-immigration. This is about recognising there are distributional consequences of this that you need public policies to address. So against this, why didn't this project fear, the government project, the main Remain campaign, assumed that if we emphasise economic security, we're going to win this. Economic security had won them the last general election against Labour. The campaign was trust us, trust the Conservatives, the economy's picking up, don't let Labour touch the economy, they're going to wreck it. And they'd ran a, it's about economic risks, they'd ran this as the main campaign in winning the Scottish referendum because they'd focused particularly on lower-income people who are most economically risk-averse, and they'd said, what's going to happen to your pension? What's going to happen to grocery prices? And what you can see here is, this is the, from uh, YouGov data. Do you think you personally would be financially better or worse off if, and the dark green bars are, Scotland became an independent country? So this is from the, the polls in Scotland before Scottish independence, vote referendum. And this is, or if Britain left the EU, and then the light green bars here are the polls relating to the EU referendum. So here, better off, worse off, no difference, don't know. So 42% of Scots voters thought they'd be worse off economically, personally, with Scottish independence. Only 21% of the uh, voters who are voting in the EU referendum thought they'd be worse off if Britain left the EU. 47% thought they'd be no different. 11% thought they'd be better off. Bear in mind that a survey of the 
I think it was the Royal Economic Society, surveyed the members of the Royal Economic Society. 95% of their members thought that leaving the EU would be worse economically for the UK. Overwhelmingly, economists were telling people, we think this is bad news for, economically for Britain. It might be okay in the long run, but as John Maynard Keynes said, in the long run we're all dead. We should only care about the short run, and in the short run, economics is going to be very difficult. But nobody was listening to that, because when you think about it, these lower income people who are the most economically at risk, if there's an economic downturn, they will suffer. In Scotland, of course, they, they then came out and voted to stay in the EU because of, in the UK because of economic risk. But it's those same voters who this time tell pollsters, we don't care about economics, we care about immigration. No matter, I don't, you can tell me what you want about economics, but I'm voting because primarily what I care about in this election is immigration, in this referendum. Look, they don't care about economics. What was interesting then is we just had out today uh, the YouGov post-referendum survey. YouGov is the main online polling agency in the UK. So well, there's been this debate about should there be a second referendum? Three and a half million people have signed a petition online uh, for a second referendum. They asked them, what is your, do you support a second referendum? 57% said no. 31% said yes. 61% of the Leave voters are in favour of a second referendum. Um, but so clearly a big majority not in favour of a second referendum. What's also interesting is looking at the expectations about what happens now. And these were some of the major promises of the Leave campaign. Do you think we'll be able to save 350 billion and this will be spent in Britain? This, is the, this was the claimed amount that the UK pays to the EU budget every week. 55% say no, we don't think we're going to save this money. But crucially, 59% of the Leave voters think we will save this money. Immigration. Will there be tighter controls on immigration? 48% say yes, but 75% of those Leave voters. Those Leave voters were voting, expecting if we leave the EU, we will be able to control immigration. Will we be safer? Will we be less safe? So going to security and terrorism. No, we won't be less safe. Leave voters, 83%. No. So security didn't play at all. Will people be significantly worse off? Only 11% of the Leave voters think they'll be significantly worse off. Despite a falling pound and a falling stock market, they still think they're only going to be, only 11% think they're going to be economically worse off. Clearly, what jumps out here is immigration. Which is astonishing when Boris Johnson on Monday writes an article in the Telegraph saying the vote to leave was really about sovereignty, had nothing to do with immigration, he says, quote, unquote. <laughs> Man. Why is he saying this? Well, there were two narratives, actually, in the Leave campaign. One narrative was a much more nationalist one, and one was a more libertarian one. The nationalist narrative from leave.eu slash grassroots out campaign was very much associated with UKIP. Nigel Farage was their poster boy. This was the, the poster they put up on the day that Joe, Co Joe Cox MP was murdered. He then took it down. But he, this was the poster, breaking point, with him standing in front of it. We must break free from the EU to take control of our borders. Clearly sending a very strong message about this is about stopping immigration. 
and about identity. Notice most of the faces here are not white. Uh, Anti-immigrant sentiment. The others was a more libertarian type message. Vote leave <coughs> to take back control. And they were using this, take, vote leave, take control, was a clever message that they could say is both about re reclaiming national sovereignty from the EU and taking control over our borders. But if anyone ever said, you're saying we should control immigration, they'd say, oh, no, no, we're not. This was about <coughs> free trade, stop paying money into the EU budget, get rid of EU regulation. And their battle bus was saying, we send 350 million a week to the EU, let's fund the NHS instead. In fact, that reminds me, I should correct that on that thing, but anyway. So you can see these two rival narratives, and you can see now the battle going on about what that means now for Britain going forward in its policy position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the EU. But before we get to that, let me look a little bit at the consequences. And I'm going to talk about political and economic consequences in the sh immediately and in the medium term. <coughs> Prime Minister resigns on the morning after, and we now have a conservative leadership election that will be resolved by the 2nd of September. The other major party in Britain, the Labour Party, loses a vote of no confidence. The leader, amongst his own MPs, 172 versus 40, which triggers a leadership election. David Cameron in the House of Commons in Prime Minister's Questions this afternoon looked at Jeremy Corbyn and said, it's great for my party that you are still the leader of Labour, but for the good of the country, for God's sake, man, please step aside. <laughs> People are talking already about an early general election. It's not as easy as it may seem. You have to trigger, um, uh, you have to change the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act or trigger the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act to engineer it, but if both Labour and Conservatives want the election, We'll get it, and so people are talking about an autumn election because they want a mandate for a new government to then go and negotiate Britain's exit from the EU. Pressure from, for Scottish independence. Polls over the weekend in two different newspapers in Scotland put 54 to 49% support for Scottish independence, with a lot of people swinging, previously being opposed to it, now being in favour of it. Nicola Sturgeon was in Brussels today. She's saying... England and Wales voted to take Scotland out of the EU. And that is not democratic, she'd say. The democratic will of the Scottish people is not to leave the EU. So let me just show you this little... This is from yesterday in the European Parliament. Now, colleagues, there is a lot of things to be negotiated. We will need cool heads and warm hearts. But please remember this. Scotland did not let you down. Please, I beg you, do not let Scotland down now. So, what does that tell you? That tells you, I'm, you know, it tells you two things. It tells you the, 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 that's Alan Smith. He's a, he's a Scottish National Party MEP in the European Parliament. Um, that's the message to the rest of Europe. We didn't vote like the rest of them. Please do a separate deal with Scotland. If we can get that separate deal, we'll have a second referendum in Scotland. And you can see the response was a standing ovation. 
from the other members of the European Parliament thumbing their nose at Nigel Farage. This was what that was about. That was about saying, well, actually, we wouldn't mind if England and Wales leave the EU and we keep Scotland, Northern Ireland and Gibraltar, who voted overwhelmingly to stay in. And so this is going to get very nasty politics. Um, I didn't get a chance to add this to the slides, but I read on the way up here that uh, Nicola Sturgeon today was cold-shouldered by Jean-Claude Juncker in the Commission and Martin Schultz, the President of the European Parliament, and Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, actually refused to meet her. And Juncker and Schultz both said to her, we hear you, we're very sympathetic, but we have to deal through the official channels, which is with the UK. If you want to join the EU... You, the UK has to leave, you have to vote to leave the UK, and then you have to apply to join the EU, which is, could get very tricky for Nicola Sturgeon. The other thing I won't say too much about, but we really ought to think about it, I just don't know a lot about it, is Northern Ireland. The Anglo-Irish Agreement of, of um, 99 um, allows the possibility of a referendum in Northern Ireland on unification with the Republic. The problem is, if the uh, Republic of Ireland remains in the EU and the UK leaves the EU, is there going to be a border? There has never, ever been a border within the island of Ireland. Would there be customs controls and passport controls? That would have an enormous detrimental economic effect on Northern Ireland. The alternative is to say, no, there's no border there. We put a border between the island and the mainland, and we have custom controls between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland and the mainland. But then that's like treating Northern Irish citizens like they are citizens of a foreign country. And the problem in Northern Ireland is Dublin actually doesn't want them, because they don't want the troubles from Northern Ireland. It's actually a much poorer province than the Republic. It would be hugely costly. And if, although the Catholics in Northern Ireland would like to join the Republic there'd be a very angry Protestant minority left that would not want to have done that and would have wanted to stay part of the UK. So it's not easy to resolve. What about the immediate economic consequences? That's, that's the pound. Here's the referendum night. There's the Sunderland result. Bang! <laughs> and then it picked up a bit and then it fell again. And, uh, you know... Yeah, well, <laughs> my holiday in France this summer is suddenly going to be 20% more expensive. Pound fell to lowest levels against the dollar since 1985. The FTSE 100 fell very fast, but amazingly, it's actually recovered over the last couple of days. They maybe know something we don't. We've also seen plans that the banks already had in place, Morgan Stanley, UBS, Deutsche Bank, and so on, uh, plans that banks have put in place to move staff out of the city of London to Dublin, Frankfurt and Paris. Why? Because what they fear is that the city of London will not have access to the European single market in financial services. And financial services moves really quickly, not like manufacturing. So Morgan Stanley, it was leaked, their plan to move 2,000 staff out of their London office uh, to Dublin to Frankfurt. And the plans are now being implemented. Um, they can do it really quickly because you can move trades very quickly. Manufacturing moves much more slowly. The bigger impact is the, of, of the political and economic uncertainty is on investment. Uncertainty is really bad for investment, meaning well, what really does that mean in the real economy? That means deciding not to employ somebody, deciding not to spend money on a new factory, deciding not to spend money on a new section of your company, deciding not to invest in infrastructure or, or buildings. 
that will have a knock-on effect on employment and growth. The other shocking immediate consequence has been an explosion in spontaneous anti-immigrant attacks. We saw leaflets through doors of Polish and Lithuanian migrants in Cambridgeshire saying, leave the EU, no more Polish vermin. And it was written in Polish on the other side of the leaflet. Graffiti outside the Polish Social and Cultural Association in London, um, in Hammersmith, lots of anecdotal evidence of personal attacks. Um, it was not my Polish nanny, but she's my Polish cleaner. She arrived on Monday morning in floods of tears. Her and her husband had faced terrible Polish, terrible uh, uh, xenophobic remarks over the weekend. Someone in a shop refused to serve her, um, so on. We've never seen anything like this. We thought we were a tolerant country. Police, there was a, initially the BBC wasn't reporting on it because they were worried that they'd be seen to be biased against the, remain, against the Leave campaign. Sky News and ITV News led with the story because the, the criticism from the Leavers was there's always been these attacks. You just want to report on them now. And so an MP in the House of Commons asked the police to issue a report. And the police issued a report looking at the, preview, the four days since the referendum, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, comparing it to the equivalent four days four weeks ago. And there had been a 57% increase in incidents of hate crime. 85 compared to 54 for the same four days uh, over the four weeks period before. What's driving this? Well, you can argue, you know, this is pent-up racism that's been latent that has not really been out in the open, and now people feel they can say it. Uh, But I think also what's driving it is people thought that voting leave meant that they were voting to kick people out of the country. There's a little... there's a Nice little video on the BBC website where, or terrifying video on the BBC website, where a correspondent went up to Leeds in Yorkshire and interviewed people in Yorkshire. And a lot of people were saying, oh yeah, we voted to leave because we want to kick the polls out. And there's even an amazing point where a British Asian man in his 20s says, look at them all coming here. This is my town. What are they doing in my town? They're taking our houses. I want to bring my wife over from India and she can't come in because I have to wait for the, to get the visa for her. They, these guys can come here for free. So, and actually, ironically, during the campaign, Priti Patel, one of the conservative politicians, an Indian politician, was deliberately playing to the Indian subcontinent minorities, saying, we have an unfair immigration policy. We have point systems and visas for immigrants from Indian subcontinent, and we have open borders from immigrants from Eastern Europe. How fair is that? And so that was playing in a lot of the Indian and Pakistani communities in parts of the UK. But the other thing driving it is the fact that we have this huge political uncertainty. We have courts saying, well, these people legally will have a right to remain. It's called acquired rights under British law. But we've not had a single politician that's really come out and said, what we want is Theresa May, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, and the key people in the opposition, all to come out and say, regardless of what happens at the end of this, if you're an EU citizen resident in the UK now, you legally will be allowed to stay. We are not going to be throwing anybody out. Nobody yet has said that. But let's think a bit about the longer-term consequences. 
we could see a collapse of the Labour Party. Whether you're a Labour supporter or a Conservative supporter or anything, this is not good for British democracy to see to, for the Conservative Party to emerge as the dominant single only party in British politics. If Corbyn wins the leadership election again, we could see a split in the party with all the moderates forming their own party. If Corbyn loses or wins and we have an early general election, Labour could lose loads of seats in the north of England to UKIP. UK, UKIP in the last general election came second to Labour in about 100 Labour seats in the north of England. And what has been going on since the referendum is UKIP campaigners going door to door, knocking on doors and saying, you voted with us against Labour. Your MP is a Labour MP. He voted to remain. You don't, he doesn't represent you anymore. We represent you. Which is exactly what the SNP were doing in Scotland after the Scottish referendum in Labour areas. And Labour lost a huge amount of votes in Scotland in the space of a few months from supporting Labour to supporting the Scottish National Party. Are we going to see the same shift in a lot of these areas of 20%, 30% of the voters in all those areas who didn't vote UKIP at the last election, they voted leave, and their MP, a Labour MP, voted remain? We could see a second Scottish independence referendum. It's not clear to me that Nicola Sturgeon could win it. She is probably the most talented politician in the UK at the moment, but it's not clear to me she could win it. Because the main sales pitch for her was always, you wouldn't notice independence. There wouldn't be a border. You keep the Queen, you keep the Pound, you keep the BBC. You won't even notice it. Um, now you would notice it. Because there would be a border, there'd be custom controls, there'd be passport controls. They may have to adopt a different currency. That's a very different sell. Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, came out yesterday with a speech and said, London must take back control. Meaning, he wants tax raising powers. If the rest of this country is going to stick two fingers up at London, we're going to stick two fingers up back. Basically. <laughs> we want tax raising powers. You lot, we massively subsidise you lot. So now we want our money back, is essentially what he's saying. This could be really have dramatic consequences for public finances in Britain. And what about the UK and the world? Adam Posen, who is an American economist, I was speaking on a platform with him two days ago, and he used to be on in the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, and he said, you guys all have really short memories, because for most of the history of the United States... The UK has not been America's favourite country in the world. In fact, it's only since the Second World War that we've had this special relationship. And why? Because it's been convenient for the United States. You're our ally in the IMF and the World Bank and the G8 and the G20. And if you become kind of isolationist, independent from Europe, inward-looking, more protectionist, you immediately stop being useful to America which was a bit of a wake-up call, I think, to a lot of people in the room. But you could equally say, look, Britain is still influential. We still have a seat on the Security Council, permanent seat on the Security Council, we're in the G8, G20, NATO, and so on. So these may, it may not pan out like that. It may be that Britain ends up being a more open, liberal country, and we are still influential in the world. I'm not, it's not all doom and gloom. Economic consequences. 
these are, of course, really uncertain. What, these are the kind of predictions that some of the economists made before the vote and what's been said over the last few days by certain key economists, particularly, particularly Angus Armstrong, who's on the ESRC program I'm on. The Treasury, the UK Treasury, and other estimates estimated a 2 to 5% fall in GDP over the next five years, um, partly because of declining investment and flight from the City of London. The midpoint prediction was about £2,500 per household than had we voted Remain. This leads to pressure on public finances because of the falling tax revenues, especially losses from banks, higher deficits and or cuts in public spending and or higher taxes. George Osborne suggested this was going to be the case. There would have to be an emergency budget. He won't be around to do it, but there will have to be some kind of emergency budget. Falling pound will lead to higher grocery and petrol prices. We should see that kicking in in the next few weeks. But house prices could well decline, so actually inflation might not go up because of lower income expectations. So we might not see higher interest rates. The more liberal version of Leave are hoping that we can cut a lot of Brussels red tape and that will lead to a far more liberal economy that could generate growth. Um, And the economists for Brexit estimated that in the short run there could be an elimination of manufacturing, some increases in wage inequality, but a far more efficient economy. But what it would mean is, what is this Brussels red tape they want to get rid of? This Brussels red tape they want to get rid of is maternity leave, paternity leave, working time, uh, holiday rights, uh, environment standards. We're going to see some pretty nasty political battles if that's the only way we can stay competitive globally. We will see declining trade with the EU. We could see growing trade with the rest of the world. That would depend on what kind of new trade relationships the the UK could sign. The Leave campaign are hoping that we can sign a quick trade agreement with the United States, for example. And what about London as the city of London? You might not care about London, and certainly these voters were thumbing their nose at London. You might not like bankers. They're rich and selfish and nasty. They pay 20% of the total tax revenue of the UK. So, and they employ, I think, 13% of total employment. But 20% of the total tax revenues in the UK come from financial services. So, yes, if the City of London collapses, if there's flight out of the City of London to Frankfurt, Dublin, Paris, Luxembourg, perhaps Edinburgh in an independent Scotland, um, you will see declining revenues from the City of London. There will have to be a rebalancing of the British economy. A lot of this will depend on passporting rights, meaning access of the City of London to sell its services in the rest of Europe. What happens now? Well, I've put, I'm going to post the slides up so you'll be able to read this. But the key thing is this Article 50 that we've heard a lot about. I've put the text up here so that you can actually see what it says. Article 50 was put into the EU treaties by the Lisbon Treaty, so there would be a provision to actually, if a member state did want to leave the EU. Any member state may decide to withdraw from the Union... To do this, you first notify the European Council, that's the heads of government. Cameron, there's going to be a delay. We won't be able to notify the European Council until after the leadership election, and that's partly what breeds this uncertainty. Then there's an agreement that will be concluded on withdrawal. So the deal is done for withdrawal. There's going to be separate negotiations on what comes afterwards, but Article 50 really does things like the term, it's like the terms of your divorce settlement meaning rights for EU citizens in the UK, rights for UK citizens in the rest of the EU, payments into the EU budget, what do we do with those, 
What do we do with contracts that have been signed? It requires qualified majority support in the, amongst the other member states and consent of the European Parliament. A separate deal, like a free trade agreement, would require unanimous agreement of the other member states. I'll come back to that. Okay. What is gathering pace amongst the liberal levers and amongst Labour, the Labour politicians who are thinking about this rather than thinking about getting rid of Jeremy Corbyn, um, is what people are calling the Norway option. And there's an argument about whether this would be in the, a long-run solution or short-run solution. But everyone assumes that in the short run, we'll go through this Article 20 process, we, ha we have to resolve this within two years, then what happens? We won't have time to negotiate a full-blown association agreement or free trade agreement, so at that point, we're going to have to move into something, and so we'll probably move into the European economic area. European economic area is Norway, Liechtenstein, and Iceland, which allows these countries to have access to the European single market. So they have complete free movement of goods, services, capital and labour, but in return they have to apply all EU rules and they have to pay into the EU budget. And they have to apply rulings of the Court of Justice via their own EFTA court. The key reason why we'd want to do this is to try and save the City of London. Financial services in particular, or generally services. But we'd have to apply freedom of movement. So this is why this is difficult. The referendum campaign was overwhelmingly about immigration. Yet, this would mean we'd still have free movement of people between us and the rest of the EU. Some people are saying there are provisions within the EEA agreement for perhaps this to be fudged. I've put it up there. The main problem I see, though, is a different one, which is that this solution is really even less, far less democratic than being a member of the EU. This is a report from the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee in 2013 where the foreign affair, these members of the British House of Commons Committee went to the Swiss Parliament and the Norwegian Parliament and said, what's it like? Could this be an option? Norway and Switzerland are in practice obliged to adopt EU legislation over which they have had no effect. On our visits to Oslo and Bern, we gained the impression that both Norway and Switzerland were prepared to accept what they acknowledged to be a democratic deficit as the price for their continued access to the single market. Our interlocutors largely advised the UK to remain inside the EU as a way of retaining influence over the legislation that we would be obliged to adopt if it remained in the single market. That's not sustainable in the long run. That's not take back control. I mean, a lot of snide comments saying vote, leave, lose control is what as people are saying. So the longer term, there will have to be something else. Germany, I understand, Angela Merkel raised the issue of perhaps some form of associate membership with some form of, some form of common decision-making. Other people have talked about a free trade agreement. Um, a free, tra free trade is different to a single market. Free trade is just an agreement to, to have zero tariffs in a subset of goods and some services. A single market is no barriers at all. No tariffs, no regulatory barriers, mutual recognition of goods and services, capital, and free movement of labour. If we fail to reach an agreement and we don't go into the EEA, what happens? We become just a normal member of the World Trade Organization, which would mean other people would impose tariffs. We could choose whether we impose tariffs, but other people would impose tariffs on us. The key problem would be services. There's goods, we're pretty close to zero tariffs globally on goods. The problem is 
getting accesses, access to services is about different regulatory standards in different countries. And again, the key issue is going to be loss of control, i.e., how do we get access to the single market versus controlling immigration. As Boris Johnson wrote on Monday, he likes to have his cake and eat it. And I don't think uh, that's on the table. Probably be some new security arrangement. I'm conscious of time, but let me wrap up. Two more slides. What does it feel like from the EU side? I focus very much on Britain. We're starting to learn this over the last couple of days with the EU summit uh, and with various statements Merkel made to the Bundestag uh, last week before going off to the EU summit. She says, I see no way of reversing this. Elsewhere in her statement, she says, the UK cannot cherry pick, i.e. you can't get passporting but no free movement of people. Boris Johnson wrote in the paper in the, in, to the Telegraph, he wants full access to the single market, free movement for British citizens to go elsewhere in the EU, and a point system for any migrants coming to the UK. <laughs> My favourite response on Twitter was, please can I have a unicorn? <laughs> but think of it from an economic point of view. The UK would be the EU's largest trading partner. 16% of EU exports go to the UK, 15% to the US. The UK would be Germany's third largest trading partner, behind France and the US, but 7% of German exports. The German Federation of Industry has been lobbying very heavily, saying, we cannot have the UK outside the single market. This would be a huge cost to Germany. But turn it around the other way and say, if you're negotiating a deal... Who has power? Well, EU trade f uh, for the rest of... So EU trade to the UK is a total percentage of EU GDP. is only about 3% of EU GDP. UK trade with the rest of the EU is around 20% of UK GDP. We're going to be far more desperate to get a deal than they are, which puts us in a weaker bargaining position. We also are going to be thinking single market is far more important in services than goods, because um, there's low tariffs and goods. We're a service sector economy. It's absolutely critical that we have the service sector economy, not just financial services, but all kinds of services, creative industries and so on. Pushing on the other side of this will be Frankfurt and Paris and Luxembourg and Dublin saying, don't give the City of London full access to the single market because we want their business. Also pushing against an economic incentive that might mean that the EU wants to get a deal is politics. What they fear more than anything else is contagion to other member states. People are talking about flexit, nexit, swexit, dexit, you name it. <laughs> Danish People's Party, um, I should have added Austria. The Austrian uh, populist right are leading in the opinion polls before the Austrian elections. They could get a majority in the parliament, a coalition with another party. The rising populists in the Netherlands, the Sweden Democrats in Sweden, Danish People's Party, as I said, all of these populist parties are very anti-EU. France is the big one to watch. We're going to be waiting for the French presidential election next year. And the rest of the EU is very worried. They're worried that if they do a generous... If it looks like it's easy to leave, you get sovereignty and you get, free move, you get control over free movement and access to the single market. Jean-Marie Le Pen is going, I want that. What's going to slow down any long-term agreement of the institutions, though? 
Any final agreement will require unanimous agreement between all 27 member states and domestic ratification, which probably means referendums in a lot of these countries, particularly France. And in Germany, the mood for a free trade agreement is really not good right now, with demonstrations on the streets about TTIP, the agreement between the EU and the US, rising anti-global free trade in lots of countries in Europe. Okay for the UK to be in the single market, but outside with a free trade agreement, a lot of people don't like that idea. How do you sum up? The UK was never fully committed to the project. Let's just admit that. We weren't in the euro or Schengen. We've not been involved in the key decisions about the euro crisis or the recent migration crisis. We've been heading for Brexit for quite some time. Britain, especially England and Wales, have voted decisively, driven mainly by inequality, identity and immigration. The best hope is that down the line, what I hope we aim for is some kind of relationship between Britain and the EU that's a bit like the relationship between Canada and the United States. Very open, liberal, free trade, closest of allies, closest of friends, close security relationship, work as partners together on the international stage against terrorism, for tackling climate change, and so on. We are going to face a choice. Access to the single market or controlling immigration. If we choose full access to the single market without immigration controls, this will anger all those people who thought that by voting leave they were voting to reduce immigration. This will need really clever political leadership and flanking policies, so like public spending policies, to achieve. And I'm just not convinced or persuaded yet that we have a political class that's able to deliver that. Finally, remember where we started. So this was Russell Bretherton, British Foreign Office official, who was in a meeting of the Spark Committee in 1955. This was the committee discussing the birth of the European Union, the European Economic Community. Britain was at that table. And Britain decided to walk away. And these were his parting words. The future treaty which you're discussing has no chance of being agreed. If it was agreed, it would have no chance of being ratified. If it were ratified, it would have no chance of being applied. If it was applied, it would be totally unacceptable to Britain. You speak of agriculture, which we don't like, of power over customs, which we take exception to, and institutions which frighten us. Monsieur le Président, Monsieur, au revoir et bonne chance. I can imagine David Cameron's words at the summit meeting yesterday were pretty similar. Monsieur le Président, Monsieur, au revoir et bonne chance. Thank you very much. Wonderful. We have, uh, we have time for questions. So I would take questions uh, three at a time, and uh, please try to be concise so other people will have a chance to ask questions as well. So we seem to have uh, um, microphones here. So there are two microphones there and one over there. So if you could raise your hand. Yes, I see one person over there. Hi, um, I'm Nadia, I'm a student um, of the summer program. Just wondering what your view is of um, 
how likely these negotiations are going to be with comments like uh, Farage's comments in the EU still going on after this. I mean, this is a point where negotiating is meant to start, where you're meant to be nice to the people you want to deal from. <laughs> so just wondering your views on that. Yep. Okay, no one else just now, so yes, please. Um, the atmosphere initially is bound to be poisonous. I mean, I think it's... Um, I was looking at the five stages of grief online. What is it? The <laughs> depression, anger, uh, I can't remember all of them, uh, denial, and then finally acceptance. Uh, bargaining was in there. And, you know, in a sense... That's going on on both sides right now, uh, particularly on... And so the EU side, there was a lot of anger and, and schadenfreude, uh, you know, p comments from politicians, comments from members of the public, members of parliament in different countries in Europe, uh, leaders saying, you know, well, we bent over backwards to do a deal with you and your people have rejected it. It's your own fault. Don't come, you know, begging for us for a good deal. Uh, and equally, there's kind of a whooping for joy amongst the leavers here, which is sort of thumbing their nose at the rest of Europe, and Farage saying, we won't be the last. You see, you, this, is a fit, this, is a, this project is doomed. We're going to be the first of a load of others. There's going to be dominoes. And I think that will blow over quite quickly, in that both sides will realise it's not in our individual or our collective interests, economically or politically or security, for us to behave like this. And it's in our interest to us to get a deal that's a good deal for both sides and a generous deal that secures our corner of the world for our economic future. Europe realises that we collectively are declining globally, economically, and we have some pretty serious security problems, particularly with Russia. And we need to stand united uh, in the face of those problems, Russia, Syria, the migration crisis, and so on. So... I think the initial anger and upset will, will pass, and I think cooler heads will get together. The problem is the uncertainty of the interim. We won't have leaders here. We won't have a government here to negotiate with till September. We, won't, we don't know whether they're going to press the Article 50 button immediately or wait. And when they do, we still then have a two-year clock. So... There was going to be quite a lot of uncertainty that's going to drag on for quite some time. And uncertainty is really bad for economics, not just for us, but also for the continent. What's interesting, another interesting fact over the last, few, last 24 hours, is the FTSE 100 index in London has gone up. And the DAX index, and the, the, so the Frankfurt Bourse and the Paris Bourse have gone down with a big run on French banks, on, the Deutsch, on Deutsche Bank in Germany, and particularly on Italian banks. So the markets are thinking... This isn't even great for Britain, but hang on a minute, this could be even worse for the continent. Uh, so I think both sides will realise very quickly we need to get to some deal quickly. So to what extent do you think that the financial firms moving to Paris right now will succeed in Europe? Since the system in Europe is more of a patient capital system that focuses on manufacturing... So what, to what extent do you think that these, you know, sh these shareholder type you know, of corporate governance will succeed in Europe? 
That's a good question. It's not the, the difference between the different models of capitalism is also often overemphasized. Um, yeah, France has manufacturing, but France has a very big service sector too, and, and a financial services sector. And the, the financial services sector in Europe has been really quite integrated in that a lot of the lenders in the British economy are actually continental European banks, and a lot of the lenders on the continent are British banks. It's a very integrated banking and financial services sector right now. And a lot of the pen- continental pensions funds are trading and buying stocks for their pension funds in the city of London. And a lot of the British pension funds are trading in the city of London, but also have stocks in Paris and Frankfurt and so on. So it's not that the whole of the city of London will decamp, but the first people who will go are the people who are trading euro-denominated products, euro-denominated security instruments for, as part of these pension funds, for example. Because they worry that if we're outside the EU, they won't be able to carry on doing that. Uh, because they won't legally be allowed to be trading and using euros. Le- even though we don't have the euro in the UK, because we're in the EU, legally we're allowed to use to trade in euros. But we can't. That might not happen. So that uncertainty... So that's the first bit of the business that goes. Irrespective of... And that's going to go whatever kind of deal gets done. Um, that's not everything that goes on in the City of London. So it's not... So I think there'll be a pause. People are going to wait to see what kind of settlement is done. And the politicians here are really going to be pushing for the financial services firms, to get access to what's called passporting, which means the ability to sell London-based financial services products anywhere in the EU, buying bonds or you know, issuing bonds to raise finance, whether it's governments or private bonds. Paris immediately yesterday came out and said no access for financial services firms in Britain. I'm not sure how long that'll last because all these French firms, smaller French businesses, even in manufacturing, if you want to raise funds... Let's say you're building a new factory in France. Where do you issue those bonds? You issue those bonds in London. So they want access to the city of London. And so I think it's not clear that France or Germany will try and block the UK from the financial services system. So three questions up there. Now I see more, but uh, those three, yes, one. And then I would take three in a row. Hello, um, my name is Eduardo. I'm from El Salvador, Central America. Um, I was just wanting to know, like, how likely will it be for the UK to engage with free trade agreements with countries of Latin America, especially with the Panama Canal extension that aims to promote uh, world trade? Then this young lady over there, just yes. Hi, um, I was just wondering, given the time. Um, you'll say it will take to see positives from this and the demographics of the voters, what you think the likelihood is of, in a relatively short time, say five years, a referendum which is successful to go back into the EU? Then this young man over here, yes. Hi there. Uh, As an American dealing with our own bizarre political phenomenon, I'm... uh, (laughs) I'm very curious what you believe the political futures are of David Cameron, Nigel Farage, and uh, Boris Johnson as well. I think it's highly likely that if we, uh, the the UK will be looking to sign new free trade agreements with as many people around the world as possible. This is exactly what the liberal leavers were hoping. One of the things they don't like about the EU is that the EU has a single common external trade policy um, 
And one of the things they were arguing is the UK would reclaim its independent seat on the World Trade Organization and will be able to negotiate separate deals. Economists up to this point had mixed feelings about these things because they say the the EU has negotiated a lot of free trade agreements and those are pretty generous free trade agreements because the EU is very, very powerful. And the UK negotiating on its own isn't as powerful. But in defence they say... The levers say, because the EU is so cumbersome with so many member states, it takes too long to negotiate these these deals. The UK on its own could negotiate them quickly. So that's the kind of, they're the sort of trade-offs there. But I would expect that we will have more free trade agreements with Latin America, with with East Asia and so on. As being a member of the EU, we already do. Often people forget that. We have free trade agreements with, for example, with South Korea, a very generous, open free trade agreement with South Korea uh, in the EU. Um, demographics, yeah. Somebody was estimating that within four or five years, the majority of voting age population that's still alive would have voted Remain. Think about that. Over 75s, it was something like 80-something percent voted Leave. Um, it only takes, you know, and if you add people at the younger end, assuming they're the same... That assumes people don't change their mind. That assumes it's what called, what's called a cohort effect, not an age effect, that people don't change their mind as they get older. They might become more conservative and more nationalist as they get older, and that might explain why older people are like that, or it might be a cohort effect, meaning these people will always keep these views as they go through their lives. We don't know which of those two things. They probably go on in parallel. Once we've moved left, left the EU, I really cannot imagine a scenario that we'd go back in unless there is absolute economic and political and constitutional meltdown. Scottish independence, Northern Irish referendum, uh, on union, violence breaks out amongst the Protestants in Northern Ireland, there's race riots in England, the city of London collapses and goes to Frankfurt and Paris. England gets knocked out of the World Cup in the first round. Uh, (laughs) Meltdown of the Labour Party and, and... That kind of disaster scenario, I can only then can I imagine the public going, what on earth did we do? (laughs) I think it's possible, but I think that's a low probability. All of those things together are a low probability event. I think it's going to be difficult. It's a rocky ride. But I am optimistic that the outcome will be some sort of very close, generous association agreement between the UK and the EU. uh, And that will probably stop Scottish independence. Um, and that would probably stop collapse of our economy and collapse of the EU's economy and would probably lead to more stable politics here and on the continent. And that leads nicely to the last question. Let me say a bit about the implications for US politics because one thing that's absolutely clear about this referendum result is that we have, across a lot of advanced industrial democracies, the same kind of phenomenon. Economic inequality, geographic inequality, big cultural divides across generations, big cultural divides between globalising cities and smaller towns, between global cities and rural areas, and a set of party politics and democratic politics that really doesn't represent those new cleavages. And that's what's leading to growth in support for populist parties. They're populist parties on the right, but actually often have economic policies that are quite on the left. So, you know, Trump in a way, Trump and Farage and Wilders in Holland and Le Pen in France, they're all very different politicians, but the appeal is similar. 
They're appealing to an underclass, a left-behind class, an older class who are kind of angry. The country is moving in the wrong direction. We don't like what has been happening. Nobody's listening to us. We don't like the cultural changes. We don't like the economic inequality. We're feeling left behind. We're feeling powerless. And that is a very dangerous and very powerful message that has been heard very, very loudly here in the UK and I think could be heard very loudly in the US presidential election. It's unlikely he is going to win, but equally it's unlikely he was going to win the Republican nomination. So, so it, it, you know, don't assume he's not going to win. Um, so what does it mean for Cameron? Cameron is finished. He's going to retire and go back to the back benches. Who knows if he still stands at the next election? He probably won't. Farage will probably, if there is an early election, will probably get elected somewhere to the House of Commons. Um, we have the battle going on in the Conservative Party over their leadership. The candidates are probably going to be Boris Johnson, Theresa May, and a young guy called Stephen Crabb, who's from Wales, who's from a lower-income background in Wales. He's a Remainer, but he's got a different appeal, and he, he's appealing off across the, he's trying to appeal to a younger generation. He's standing now, not for this one, but for perhaps the next battle. It's probably going to be between Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Theresa May supported Remain. Boris Johnson supported Leave. All the Leavers are going to support Boris. All the Remainers are going to support Theresa in their party. The voters in the party are overwhelmingly, because the party members are overwhelmingly Leavers, older voters who voted Leave, um, and they will probably support Boris Johnson. So if you're Theresa May, what do you do? You outflank him by moving to the right, which is what she suddenly has started doing. She's now promising more controls on immigration than he is. He's pretending immigration wasn't an issue. No, 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 no. We, we, people were voting for sovereignty and free trade. That's what they were voting for, he's saying. And so she's going to try and outflank him. Uh, and so that could get interesting to see what happens. But I, looking down the pipe right now, my expectation is he's our next prime minister. So two hands going up up here. I think this gentleman over there. And... Uh, on this side, yes, two people. Um, hi, uh, my question is, do you think like uh, Brexit is kind of an indicator of uh, not only UK, but EU and the rest of the world is shifting to a more kind of conservative point of view right now? Thank you. Um, I think the shift, you ought to be distinguished between conservative and populist. I think they're two quite different things. Um, I think we've seen over the last decade in a lot of the advanced democracies, mainstream centre-right becoming dominant and decline of social democracy. But the mainstream centre-right has, be has become dominant with a policy that has been economically liberal but also quite socially liberal. We've seen liberalisation of gay rights, <coughs> gay marriage, for example, um, acceptance of new social lifestyles and values and this kind of stuff. So, and that is very different to what is now emerging to the right of those parties, which is a very populist party, anti that more liberal cultural view of the mainstream centre-right, um, and appealing also to an underclass that used to be voters of the radical left, so, of the left. So the two groups that these populist parties appeal to are lower-income voters who used to, be, used to vote for the left, and older rural, socially conservative voters who used to vote for the mainstream centre-right. And you put those two together, and that, they're the groups that have been left behind 
or don't like what has been happening, and they're then going and voting for these populists. And that's universal across advanced democracies. So there are three people on this side. One, two, I saw a third hand. Anyway, two people. Ah, three. Okay, yes. Um, yes. Uh, hi. Um, doing a finance course over here at LSE for the summer school. Um, so my question is, isn't it better for Britain uh, in the long term to detach itself from the EU, from the Eurozone crisis, from the migration crisis, and the crisis impending the euro because of the negative interest rates and all the, uh, you know, the tourist, uh, tourist activities that have been happening all over Europe, not e in uh, Britain, down. Okay. The gentleman behind, yes. Yeah. So my question is that since Cameroon already slowed down the process and the election, other elections are uh, looming in, uh, in other EU countries, and there will be no time for the uh, EU to set an example, as, as, as was cited in the presentation, will the other far-right parties emerge and, and the whole process of disintegration start in the EU? And how, how do you think the politics will play out? And the, the another part of it was, uh, another question to this is, the likely period of uncertainty will stretch over two years because of the whole uh, Article 50. So will the financial services, how likely the financial services will shift to other cities? And there's a young lady over there. Yes. I have two questions. Um, one is, what role do you think the fear of terrorism played in this and the refugee crisis? And also, do you think that we're watching the breakup of the UK with Scotland um, trying to become independent, a Northern Ireland referendum? Um, do you think we're going to be Little England? Mm, okay. Um, look, you could be right about the fact that we, are, we could be better off um, outside the migration crisis and the Eurozone crisis. But on the one hand, we were never in the Euro, and we were never in Schengen, so we weren't affected by the migration crisis so much, and we weren't affected by the Eurozone crisis. And most economists looking at this question were thinking, we're not really affected by the Euro crisis. What is far more important is that Britain is part of the European single market. And so that's why some overwhelmingly professional economists, when trying to work with their models of this, were saying this would be bad for UK GDP if we left. So even factoring in another Eurozone crisis or whatever. And equally, Britain leaving the EU could provoke even more economic crisis on the continent, and the EU is still our largest trade. You know, we sell 50% of our external trade to the rest of the EU. If the European economy goes down, that affects us, right? So, so it, it, it's hard to... I mean, but we might look back and say, you know, it was good that we were out of it. That was certainly part of the Leave campaign... Um, we don't want to be chained to a dead horse, was the kind of argument. Disintegration uh, in the EU. Well, the, the, I didn't elaborate on the point that was on one of my slides, which was that the EU is now in the midst of a fight over its future. On the, there's two different narratives now. One is, without Britain, we can now push for deeper integration, because Britain was always trying to stop us to do that. And that's really the... We're seeing that among the French centre, right and left, and we're seeing that in the German left uh, and Benelux. Um, the other narrative is we need to learn the lessons from Britain and we need to have a more decentralised, flexible, uh, devolved model for European integration with much more 
variable geometry of people doing different things in different ways. And that's being pushed very much by Scandinavia, the Netherlands, uh, and a lot of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, don't, we don't know which way that plays out in the coming years. Um, but I would be very surprised if we see another referendum um, that leads to us leaving. Britain it is very different. The psychology, the identity is very different. The polls in Denmark and Sweden and the Netherlands and France are showing nowhere near a majority in support for leaving the EU. Um, and it feels, you know, it's an identity question in a sense. Our, the British identity has never really been a European identity in the same way as it has been for some other, most other countries. Um, if the length of uncertainty goes on, what does it do for financial Well, it's not just about financial services moving to other cities within Europe. It's moving to other cities in the world. And manuf- not just financial services, manufacturing would worry too. The uncertainty could easily move from financial services to manufacturing. You can imagine that, let's say you're Nissan in Sunderland. <laughs> And you employ people in a factory in Sunderland where 80% of the cars you manufacture go to the rest of Europe. Are you now going to start saying, we're going to, ex- you know, what happens when you have to renew your production lines in two or three years' time? Are you renewing your production line in Sunderland or are you going to renew your production line in Slovakia? Well, it might be really cheap now in Sunderland because the pound's fallen so far. But you might not, you might. You don't know whether there's going to be tariffs on those cars now that you've produced to sell to the rest of the EU. So the longer the uncertainty goes on, the more you get contagion from financial services into manufacturing, and that's a real worry. Um, terrorism. I, the polls suggest that that really didn't play into this. The UK doesn't seem to worry so much about that. We've had terrorism or the threat of terrorism in Britain for a long time from the IRA and so on. So the immediate threat of terrorism does not really play so much on British consciousness. The migration crisis probably did, because it did allow Farage and co. to to have all these pictures and tell all these stories of the hordes are coming. We need to pull up the drawbridge. That was the kind of message, and that resonated clearly with lots of people. Finally, are we seeing a breakup of the UK? Well, maybe. Um, I really wouldn't like to guess on that one. I wouldn't, if 10 years down the line, I could well imagine that Scotland is independent and that the Northern Ireland is part of the Republic and that Gibraltar is part of Spain. Um, J.K. Rowling used to be in, was in, was in favour of Scotland staying in Britain and she took a lot of flack on social media for that. The day after the vote, she tweeted, let's go for Scottish independence. So if she's the litmus test of Scottish public opinion on this, um, then we are heading for Scottish independence. Two more questions over there. I'd like to have a little bit of balance, not only in terms of gender, but also up and down. So if one of you down people, okay, thanks very much, okay. Uh, First two people over there, up there, uh, who raised your hand, yes. Hi, Um, I was just wondering, there was... Four more minutes, okay? Yep, four more minutes. Uh, There was an article today in the New York Times, and it said um, with the the whole, like, political developments in America, with the uh, Trump campaign, and also the Brexit here in the UK, it basically set a populist farewell to the um, laissez-faire capitalism, 
And I was just wondering about, um, about your comment on this article that said it was just basically a farewell to capitalism as it is. And what type of um, basically throwback would it be to the globalization process um, in the whole like world? Thank you. Okay, nice easy question. <laughs> All right, so we saw after the Brexit vote that London voted pretty significantly to remain, and then obviously we, they left. So there's been calls recently for London yes. to possibly leave England <laughs> as its own. <laughs> London and perhaps uh, Brighton. And become its own city state. Uh, what do you think are the validity of those claims, and how do you think that would affect the UK? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and this young lady here. Yes. Uh, though I'm from Russia, and you said that you have to join uh, to face Russia, but I have a paradoxical question. Is any procedural possibility that those uh, results of this referendum won't be enforced, and the EU will remain in uh, UK, UK in, in EU? or they remain together, despite of the results of this referendum. So they could be ignored by a parliament or by a queen or somehow. So is there any procedural possibility? I would take one, one last... Sorry, did and you... And I had one okay, more one. question. Uh, what sh shall happen with the legal system in case the, for the answer for the first question is negative? So if UK possibly leave, uh, shall it move uh, far far away from the European and uh, ignore all those uh, things that were made to make them closer, civil and common law systems, or it will still remain as it is? Okay, and one last question from this. No, no, okay. No? I think oh, the, the guy behind yeah, with the, the glasses, yeah. Thank Hi. you. Um, Shifting focus to Europe, do you feel that Brussels will uh, try to tamp out Euroscepticism on the continent with further policy integration, or does the Brexit referendum show that European integration is past its prime? Right. Yeah. Okay. How long have we got? <laughs> uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, the great um, scholar of inequality, um, has written a piece yesterday in French, and I think it's going to be coming out later this week in, in English, um, where he says that this is being, what's driving this is inequality. Um, and I think globalization has had huge benefits, but those benefits have been distributed um, in, in an unequal way. So enormous returns on education, enormous returns on location, um, in terms of capital cities, globalizing cities, for example. And growing inequality in a lot of democracies has been driven by globalization. Um, and now we're kind of waking up to that fact, and I think this will have implications for public policy going forward. Either we're going to see populist parties winning in some places and pursuing more nationalist anti-immigration policies, or we're going to see mainstream parties strategically responding by thinking about how to change public policies to address those inequalities, to redistribute wealth more, higher taxes, um, to target public services, and so on. Um, we're in the middle of that debate. Um, London independence. 
Um, there's discussions going on. It doesn't sound crazy, but it wouldn't that London would be independent, but there's discussions going on about what kind of status could there be for London as a sort of offshore market or offshore legal system for the EU, even if the UK was outside. Um, like, for example, you know, we are in the EU, but Guernsey and Jersey and the Isle of Man are not, but they have UK law. You know, there's often very odd things. So could, for example, if there's insufficient legal devolution in the UK, could, in certain sectors, the, the London government agree to apply certain aspects of EU law, say in financial services, for it to be able to be recognised as part of the single market. So this is a really, these discussions are going on right now. Um, would it be enforced? Well, you know, the great, one of the great ironies of the referendum is the, the, one of the main pl planks of the Leave campaign was we need to take back control for Westminster for our national parliamentary sovereignty via a referendum that's going to overrule parliamentary sovereignty. It's a very odd mix of different ideas. So it's only legally, formally a consultative referendum. We have parliamentary sovereignty. Parliament could vote tomorrow to just ignore it. But in practice, we don't have parliamentary sovereignty anymore. In practice, we now have popular sovereignty. And we would have, I think we'd have pitchforks and a revolution outside, you know, in Westminster if the House of Commons tried to overturn it. Um, uh, data out from Chris Hanretti, who studies public opinion, he's looked, he's tried to extract or identify the vote, remain and leave in every parliamentary constituency in the country, and he reckons there was a majority for leave in 421 of them, which is an overwhelming majority. So these MPs may be pro-remain, but there, there's a clear majority of their constituents who are not, and I think that would suggest they wouldn't overturn it. The only scenario I can imagine is if there's a lot of chaos... And the new leader of the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, the Scottish National Party, go into a new election on a platform of, we will overturn this, and they win a majority. I don't think that's going to happen, because I don't think the next leader of the Labour Party is going to want to run on that platform, given what I've told you about their voters. I think the next leader of the Labour Party is going to say, no, we accept this outcome, and we have to deal with it. And in that sense, I think there's no chance of it being overturned. I think we're heading out of the EU, folks. You know, it's really going to happen. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but I think this is a good question in that what actually happens to that corpus of law, the acquis communautaire that we have inherited now from the EU? And I ask my legal friends about this, and the main interpretation they have is that the simplest thing is just to recognise all of it as part of UK law now. Um, rather than repealing the 1972 Act of us joining the EU, which would then repeal all that law, they would amend the Act and say that... Th and then once this is part of UK law, you have legal certainty, and then you can actually repeal it bit by bit as you go along and buy yourself a lot of time. So that's what I expect to be happening in, in the legal realm. Finally, Brussels. Um, I sort of tried to answer this before, but I think there really is going to be a debate in Brussels about now... What does the EU collectively do to try and address Euroscepticism? And, and I'm not sure they've got very good ideas. I think they have to think about how to generate growth in the single market as the main thing. How do they generate growth? How do they generate jobs? And there will be a debate about free movement of people. They will revisit the 2003 Free Movement Directive 
and there will be a discussion about some kind of perhaps quotas or emergency breaks or something. So I think some combination of those two is what we're probably going to see. So two things. First, I hope to see many of you at the fifth floor for some drinks uh, in a little while. And second, please join me in thanking Professor uh, Hicks for a most insightful lecture.